Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thank you for listening to this Billy Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go Billy Up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic podcast, we take a deep dive into the history of African Americans and minorities in the NFL. In story time with Uncle Mike, a tale of a narcoleptic football player. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. What's happening? NFL historians, this show isn't for you. This is for those who don't know as much. So we are here to enlighten. But please, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm always here to learn. Always. Behind the Mic Podcast, Michael Neal Jr., your host. This is presented by Belly Up Sports, the Belly Up Sports Podcast Network. Just check us out on bellyupsports.com. Nice new website we got there. My podcast can be found on Spreaker, S-S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R, Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, I believe I'm on TuneIn Radio and a couple of other ones that I probably don't even remember. So look, we're going right into it. Today's show is going to be, uh, well, knowing that the NFL draft is this weekend, all right, going what first round is starting this Thursday, as a matter of fact. And it got me to thinking about how many, just to be honest, African-American football players are going to be going. And I thought about the quarterbacks. And we have two, at least two of the top four guys that are going to go in the first round. You think about Trey Lance um, of North Dakota State and also Justin Fields of Ohio State. So it got me thinking, man, we've come a long way even though we still have a ways to go. But it got me to thinking about uh, not just quarterbacks, because we talked about quarterbacks on last week. It got me to thinking about the history of African-Americans and minorities entering the league. So did I come from a black perspective being an African-American myself? Yes, but there's still more to be learned. To understand black history, there is a good and a bad side. 
And when we talk about sports, we have to understand exactly what people had to endure, you know, because blacks are I mean, African-Americans. They are people and they had to endure a lot of crap. OK, to get to where they are even today. And, yeah, you know, we complain a lot even um, as minorities, just how bad we seem to have things now. Things are so much better than they used to be. Again, we still have a ways to go. But the mess that people had to go through, ancestors had to go through before 2021 and even before, years before this is just somewhat unimaginable. And I got to thinking about those things. I'm like, we're going to do that today. You know, when we, we become around, this is last week. We're going to do that on Tuesday. Tuesday, we record. Wednesday, the show drops. Make sure you tell your friends about this show. Listen, please. Um, and give me feedback. So you have to understand what blacks or minorities had to endure. I mean, if you look at just the African-American experience, you got uh, against your will, you were brought to a country, a foreign country, as slaves. And even after you were freed, you had to Un, uh, endure unfair treatment and it didn't stop you know with just life sports it feel you fill in the blank there as well there was plenty of mess that you don't even think about and we look at history we watch things on television it doesn't always give you the dirty details of what really happened and even when we see stuff when they try to give you those details that still isn't close to the truth and things were much much worse uh, and, and sometimes they can make it pretty close to what happened in real life. But thinking about those things, some guys had to really endure to get to the place where they are now. And the ugly word, segregation. Segregation. That's where that all of that really, let's just say that was the genesis of a lot of things. And even in sports, remember baseball. America's pastime, that was the greatest sport and the, the number one sport, rather, in the country. Football came along much later. And so that plays a factor in some of the things that we're going to talk about on today. But going right into it, you think about the players, you think about the coaches and those who were drafted and position players and not just quarterbacks. Think about middle linebackers. They didn't want certain, they didn't want African Americans to play certain positions yes run the football but we don't want you calling plays and throwing passes yes make tackles but i want you calling plays and making uh calls as a linebacker we have to remember some of those kind of things well you go all the way back in history and as far as professional football the first actual professional football player i thought it was fritz pollard no 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 it was actually charles Follis. And a lot of this, I'm number one, I'm going to have to reference where I'm really learning and getting my information from. Now, I've watched a lot of television um, documentaries and specials, but I've been reading a really good book. All right. And it actually, uh, I don't remember what year it came out, but it is, um, well, it was just a couple of years ago. So it was the NFL at 100, America's Game, the NFL at 100 by Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams. And this book was actually written back in 2019, dropped in 2019. So in um, learning a lot of the stuff that I've did, there's a nice chapter in there where basically it talked about, you know, uh, African-American experience and the history of 
uh, them coming into football in the in the parts and the roles that they played. Follis was actually, like I said, the first professional football player, although he was paid from where I've read in my research in 1902. He actually signed a contract in 1904 and he played for Shelby Athletic Club back in 02 uh, to, to, uh, to 1906, to 1902 to 1906. He was teammates with one Branch Rickey. If you don't remember who Branch Rickey or don't know who Branch Rickey is, he is the Dodgers executive who had who basically played that pivotal role in signing Jackie Robinson some 40 years later to a minor league contract back in 1945. Of course, 47, Jackie Robinson made his major league debut. The first coach, I was learning about the first coach, obviously, Fritz Pollard, he's one that I was familiar with. And he actually, along with Bobby Marshall, were the first two black players that actually suit up for the NFL. The NFL started in 1920, and they were a part of the first season. They both played for the Akron Pros. And you had, um, and even though Fritz Pollard is credited as being the first black coach, he wasn't the first coach all by himself. Uh, he was actually a co-coach. Hopefully I'm saying this man's name right. He was a co-coach with Egley Tobin. Don't know if I'm saying his name right. Again, correct me if I'm wrong. The first coach that actually was the coach by himself was Art Shell. When um, Al Davis from the then Los Angeles Raiders hired Art Shell, his Hall of Fame tackle from back in the day, to be the coach back in 1989. Um, and then there were others that played a pivotal role that that was pre, let's just call it in the um, the pre-modern era of professional football when it began. And remember, it wasn't even called the NFL yet. So you had guys like Paul Robeson, Gideon Smith, and Charles Doc Baker, and also a player by the name of Henry McDonald. Now, if you talk about the violence on and off the field that these players had to endure, you read about how they couldn't stay in the same hotels. They couldn't even dress in the same spots. I even read where Fritz Pollard it got so bad, you know, they didn't want him on the field. And he was a star for his team and a co-coach, too, taking snaps. Wasn't technically the quarterback. They ran a single wing. If you're not familiar with the single wing, you took snaps and you ran with the football. You know, it's kind of a direct snap. And you ran with the football or you pitched it, you know, to another player. But it got so bad for Pollard to the point where he had to dress somewhere nearby like a cigar shop is one place I read. And right around kickoff, then they had to put him on the field. Because other than that, they was going to try to keep him from even playing the game. Hmm. The, the lengths people will go and the hatred that you have to endure. Well, the people, it, it's, it's, people are born, not necessarily born hating necessarily, but that's a learned, a learned experience. You know, it goes from generation to generation. Uh, there's a Hall of Famer. Um, was really disappointed to hear this, but I had to think to myself, Mike, don't be an idiot. There are plenty of people in the Hall of Fames that you know of, baseball, football, and basketball, that did not like other races. They didn't. Here's one. His name was, and he's a Hall of Fame uh, coach, Earl Greasy Neal. That's N-E-A-L-E. -E. Not the same as my name. McDonald played for the Rochester Jeffersons. Neil played for the legendary Canton Bulldogs with Jim Thorpe, who was an, uh, an, a legit 
Native American, okay, born and raised on a reservation in Oklahoma and was the athlete of athletes back in that time. Well, the Canton Bulldogs, they were playing. Neil slams and tosses the guy out of bounds, Henry McDonald, a black man, stands over him, and he says, black is black and white is white. And just kind of paraphrasing, he said that, he said, and, uh, and where I come from, that uh, they don't mix. So <laughs> McDonald gets up, fist balled up. Now, McDonald, I found out, was an accomplished boxer. So it was about to go down right there on the field. I think Jim Thorpe sale, uh, saved Greasy Neal's life because he stepped in and said, hey, we're here to play football. And apparently they did have great respect, even though even Thorpe himself had to endure racist, racist taunts and all kinds of things himself. All right. His story did not end well, by the way. Um, but he broke that up and they went on about their business. There are several players um, and, and, you know, that were around during that time. And I'm talking about from the time from 1920 to 1933 in 1932 did not know this. The owners, the NFL, well, yeah, the NFL owners of the time, they basically gathered together and said, without actually putting it out there, we don't want to sign any more black players. So from 1920 to 1933, there were 13 total that played in the league. From 1933 to 1946, there were zero. Now, there were many key factors in this. Now, if you listen to the first show that I did once this pod turned history, the NFL again was not popular, not like college football and definitely not like Major League Baseball. So they were getting hit in the pocket. So financially, things were not great. So they had to cut back. They went from 22 teams to 12. Not to mention, you factor in the Great Depression and lack of media coverage that I read in this book. Lack of media coverage and recruiting the black community. What does that mean? Whites got first dibs on NFL jobs, period. And then, like I said, you and then another and in another point, it went down to even eight teams. So there was not a lot of opportunity. So they were not going to give African-American players opportunities like that. Just wasn't happening. Then you fast forward to 1946. World War II is over with and they're coming out of the depression. And this is kind of this is really where reintegration because it was integrated. Reintegration really began. Now, don't give the NFL too much credit because it was, you know, like cooking a nice roast. It was slow, very slow. Moved like pond water. Pond water really doesn't move. But anyway, it, the NFL and then their new league that sprang up the exact same time because everybody's trying to get back to the NFL. There's no more war. And keep this in mind. The draft went up to as many as 30 rounds because you had players that had when they were fit enough, they had to go overseas to war. They had to fight. And then there were others. And keep in mind, also, the injuries in the NFL, you know, they didn't leave guys uh, as physically fit. And then you would be I think it's called 4F when you got examined. If you were sickly, if you had too many different injuries and things, you couldn't go over there, but you could still play football. But there wasn't, as, there wasn't as many jobs 
But then when things came back and players started coming back from the war, then they were trying to get back in the league to play on those weekends like they had years before. Okay, well, fast forward to 46. There's even a new conference called the All-American Football Conference. It had eight teams in there. They split it in two divisions. Enter the Los Angeles Rams who left Cleveland and the Los Angeles Dons of the AAFC. The story goes like this. Well, these teams, and particularly, I think it was the Rams, they wanted to lease the L.A. Coliseum. And from some outside pressure, and really it was coming from a columnist by the name of Haley Harding. He wrote a column, and I'm going to read a short excerpt from the book, as a matter of fact, that pretty much breaks it down. Um, and I'm going to, and I quote from America's game, some credit for the Rams signing of Washington. And we're talking about Kenny Washington and we'll get into him in a second signing of Washington and Strode. That would be Wood or Woody Strode goes to Haley Harding, an outspoken Amer- African-American columnist for the local black community's newspaper in his Los Angeles tr- uh, Tribune column called So What? Harding continually pressed Rams executives, particularly GM Child Walsh, as to why the Rams would not employ black players. He also accused the NFL of lacking gratitude toward the African-American athletes who'd helped establish the fledging league during its touch and go early days, such as uh, Fritz Pollard and Paul Robeson. Harding's impassioned words helped trigger the NFL's reintegration. And then, of course, like I said, they want to play in the L.A. Coliseum. But there were some reservations over their prospective tenants, discriminatory policies um, before going ahead with the deal. So, yeah, there was a little bit of both going there. And if they want to play, you need to sign some black players. Who did they sign? Kenny Washington and Woody Strode. Now, Kenny Washington and I had to do some research even on him. You would never see in this day and time a player that led the nation in rushing and passing not get drafted, would you? Of course not. Well, that happened back in 1939 when he played for the UCLA Bruins. When he played for UCLA and he was teammates with Woody Strode and somebody by the name, again, of Jackie Robinson. All three of these guys were on this team. They were great, and he led the nation in rushing and receiving, but because and they were not signing black players, there was no uh, NFL for Kenny Washington, who pretty much was the best player uh, in the country, at least on the West Coast anyway. Instead of going into the league, he ended up going to work for the LAPD, and eventually he came back uh, once he was signed uh, to play for the Cleveland, uh, for, for the uh, Los Angeles Rams. Now, unfortunately, Strode was not the same guy that he was. He was 28 year old, years old by this time. The guy had been through three knee surgeries, although he did, you know, average like, I think like six yards of carry or whatnot. Uh, the dude was, he still had something left, but it wasn't long. It didn't last long. And even Woody Strode only played for a year. And he was signed to be, uh, pretty much a roommate sign no less it was uh, I don't even want to call it a token sign but it may have been 
if you really want to be real. Um, and Jackie Robinson, of course, you know, he ends up playing baseball, even though he was a great, uh, you know, he was a track star and he played football at UCLA. So then you go to Hall of Fame coach Paul Brown. In 46, the, the Cleveland Browns, they were everything. So this guy, he was a legend in high school, winning championships. Uh, he coached at Ohio State. Uh, and then he starts with the, with the uh, Cleveland Browns. And here's the thing. In the 10 years from 1946 to 1955, these guys won a lot. He signed two black players. He started off with these two guys, Marion Motley, who he had coached, I think it, um, I think it was like the Navy. Ah, I know what it was. It was the Great Lakes Naval Training Station during the World War II. And uh, he, he coached another guy by the name of Bill Willis. Both of these guys ended up in the Hall of Fame. Willis played for him in Ohio State. The Browns got results out of that. Championships. They went four for four in the AAFC up until 1950. So 46, 47, 48, and 49. 50, the, the Browns were among the three teams that joined the NFL. Then they kept going to the championship. In what, 10-year period? They won seven titles between the AAFC and the NFL. And they went 10 times. 10 for 10 going to the championship, and they won seven. Those are results. Those are results. There were more and more players that started getting signed. Uh, then you got uh, players like Elman Tunnel, who was a defensive back for the New York Giants, Hall of Famer. Joe Perry, who played running back for the San Francisco 49ers. See what happens when you bring in some color. You got some brothers in there in the backfield. He was the first guy to go, the first running back to go back to back as far as 1,000-yard seasons in 53 and 54. And he was the first African-American NFL MVP. How about that? So you had some progression going from the 40s, from the mid 40s into the 50s. But not until around 1960 did things start to really change. But there's always one. There's always one guy that wants to stand in the way. There's always one person. This is like going to Walmart. There's always that one car that wants to go, you know, down the wrong aisle when everybody else is driving in the correct way and the arrow is pointing at them right in their face and then they're thinking that everybody else is wrong there's always that one person don't be that guy but there was an owner that was that guy next all right keeping it moving um in 1960 the afl was born eight teams eight teams of course if you want to fast forward all the way to 1970 11 seasons later the afl and the nfl would eventually merge but this is at the beginning and they were kind of a struggling league so they recognized that there were black athletes in hbcus like uh tsu tennessee state right here in my backyard grambling texas southern Alcorn State that actually had players that they had players, guys that can play. And they recognized also that they were competing with another league that was already getting a lot of the best players. 
and you need to get some of those too. So they open the doors a little bit wider. Now, it, it is to be noted, players say like Bobby Bell that said that both leagues, both the NFL and the AFL, they still had their issues with, with race. But the AFL was a lot more welcoming for black players to come in. Therefore, there was draft, they, they had draft picks. For example, in the 1963 draft, the fourth year of the AFL, the first ever black number one overall pick, Junius Buck Buchanan was drafted by the the uh, what was it the Houston Texans back then the Houston Texans no the sorry the Dallas Texans the Dallas Texans they ended up being the Kansas City Chiefs out of Grambling first overall pick now here's the crazy part in the NFL the New York Giants selected this eventual Hall of Famer in the 19th round pick 265. How about that? And this guy ended up becoming a Hall of Famer and a Super Bowl four champ. And here's the other part. On the other side of that, his teammate, Bobby Bell, out of Minnesota, played right up under the nose, right up under here, Gina, right up under the nose of the Minnesota Vikings. He went to Minnesota. They drafted him in the second round. That's pretty good, right? Well, he shocked the world by saying, ah, I think I'm going to play in the AFL instead. And they drafted him in the seventh round. One of the better players in college football. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame. I mean, <laughs> you know, he ended up being the chief too. The NFL, like I said, they still were a little bit stubborn. You know, although they did select black players, that's great. But again, there was one guy, there was one team. That just refused to do so. There, I'll tell you that film again. It's on YouTube. If I can find it, I'm going to buy it. 75 seasons. Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, I'll just say out of respect for the Washington football team, Sammy Ball. They got to talking about the owner, George Preston Marshall. From the team's inception as the Boston Braves in 1932, all the way to the day that he died in 1969. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Here's to the great American settlers. The millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say. Start a podcast with Spreaker from iHeart and unleash your creative freedom. Maybe even earn enough money to one day tell your old boss, Hey, I'm no settler. I'm an explorer. Spreaker.com. S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Hustle on over today. The quote that he had when he, they asked him about uh, signing black players, he said, we'll start signing black players when the Globetrotters, Harlem Globetrotters, start signing white players. That's amazing. He didn't want no part of it. Here's the kicker, though. 1937, he changed the team to the Washington Redskins. They moved from the Boston Braves to being 
uh, the Washington football team. Okay. From then, from 37 to 45, they won two championships and they had six division titles. 1946 happens. Like I said, a little bit of reintegration. Uh, and he never had a black football player on his team before. But from 46 to the day that the guy died to 69, zero, zero championships. And they only had three winning seasons. And it's crazy. Um, in the JFK administration, there was a secretary uh, that that basically they, they talked about because it was on government property. I forget the guy's name. But for in order for them to play in the new newly minted D.C. stadium, they had to sign some black players. Who did he sign? Well, they ended up drafting in 61 Ernie Davis, the Hall of uh, the um, Syracuse Heisman Trophy winner, the, the halfback. He said, I'm not playing for them. No way. Nah. So what did they end up having to do? They had to trade him away. They ended up with a Hall of Famer, Bobby Mitchell, and uh, a player by the name of Leroy Jackson. Very interesting. Very interesting. But there's some people they don't want, they don't want to move. And we still experience some of that now. Um, whether, whether it's blatant or not, we still experience some of that stuff now in different positions, though. In 1969, again, Bobby Bell, by the way, who was a Minnesota uh, Golden Gopher, was drafted by the Minnesota Vikings and decided to go with the Kansas City, Kansas City Chiefs, who met in Super Bowl four. The, the last AFL-NFL championship it wasn't necessarily the Super Bowl yet. I mean, by then, yeah. But the last AFL-NFL championship, the Super Bowl, Super Bowl four, the Minnesota Vikings and the Kansas City Chiefs. And the Chiefs gave them a beatdown. Won it. Next year, they merged in 1970. Well, a little bit of revenge for him, right? So we can't go through this thing without talking about the black quarterback. Again, last week we talked talked about the history of black quarterbacks um, and revisiting, you know, some of the greatest quarterbacks and and where they're drafted in history. Well, some didn't even get drafted at all. That there's just some that just never had a chance, and we're never going to get a chance. And again, in some of my history, just running this down back in 1953. Uh, well, if you go back, I already said about Fritz Pollard. He took snaps, direct snaps. But he wasn't throwing the football. It was outlawed back then. So in 53, Willie Thrower was the first to take a snap as a quarterback. Willie Thrower. How about that? Chicago Bears. Y'all didn't see that? Y'all didn't let him start. Anyway, uh, and then we have, in 1968, the Denver Broncos brought in Marlon Briscoe. Marlon Briscoe, I was talking about, uh, talking to one of my buddies today, um, he, he used to play for the Buffalo Bills named Kenny Johnson. And we got a story from him in story time with Uncle Mike. But um, we, we talked about him and others today just in our little light conversation. I thought when I think about Marlon Briscoe, I don't necessarily think about him as being I mean, I remember him, you know, being a one time quarterback before um, his team decided to go in another direction and put not only a starter in front of him, but another backup. And he just said, oh. You know, I need y'all to trade me. And they did. Ended up switching over with the Buffalo Bills to a wide receiver position. I remember him more so playing with the Miami Dolphins. That, I mean, that was the first time that I had heard his name as a kid. 
and seeing those NFL films, the Super Bowl memories, him catching the ball here and there. But um, he was the first starter, the first black quarterback as a starter. And then you have other guys that followed behind him. You had 72, the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, you know, it's really famous around here because uh, Jefferson, Jefferson Street Joe Gilliam in 72 was brought in by the Pittsburgh Steelers. He beat out the first overall pick in 1970 by the Steelers, quarterback, Hall of Famer, Terry Bradshaw. Again, and I'll say it again, Bradshaw, and he'll tell you himself, he threw more interceptions than touchdowns in his career, but he stunk in the first five years, uh, five, six years of his career. He didn't throw for 300 yards until 78, and that was in the Super Bowl. So, uh, but he, he uh, Gilliam beat him out in the 74 season and opened up as the starter. But obviously he had a short leash. And speaking of 74, then you have James Harris, also out of Grambling. He was the first black quarterback to win a playoff game. How about that? He beat the Washington Redskins 19 to 10 in the playoff game in 74. Speaking of the Washington football team, I'm trying to get out of the habit of saying that. There was no quarterback selected before the sixth round, I think it was, until 1978. And in the first round, Doug Williams was drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then Bucan, uh, then after him enduring some some really, really oh, some some crap, especially after that 79 uh playoff loss to the Rams, in which the Rams went and lost to the Steelers in Super Bowl 14, he endured some mess. He lost his wife and things like that. No, he bounced back. Some years later, even after being out of pro football for some years, picked up by the Washington Redskins. Was he great towards the end of his career? No, but he was a Super Bowl MVP. <laughs> and a big 42 to 10 win against the Denver Broncos. Go figure. Black quarterback beating the Denver Broncos, throwing four touchdowns in the quarter. Ah, that, that was a great day. Um, one, first black quarterback to start in the Super Bowl and the first to win one. That was great. And then there's guys like Warren Moon, who had to spend six years in the Canadian Football League. It made no sense. Nobody wanted to put the ball in the hands of a black quarterback back then. They just, you know, they, they had there was that stigma. There was that mental block. Like I said, there's, there's always one standing in the way. And Warren Moon ended up being, other than Peyton Manning and... Um, and, and Dan Marino being the greatest passer, I believe, in NFL history. No, he never won a championship. Uh, you know, he got to, you know, he, he, they were in the playoffs with the Houston Oilers when he came in the league in 1984 as a 27-year-old rookie. After dominating in the CFL, he played there six years. They won the Grey Cup, which is a championship, five times. He, start, he came in the league at 27 years old and still threw for 50,000 yards. Are you serious? That's crazy. That's crazy. It's, it's the talent that is missed out on. So much talent that was missed out on. How about that? Then you, you open the door for more and more. In the 80s, it, it opened up even more. Um, guys like uh, uh, Randall Cunningham, Donovan McNabb, you go from the 80s to now. Randall Cunningham, Donovan McNabb, Steve McNair, Michael Vick was in 2000. He was the first black quarterback to be selected number one overall. Vince Young 
even though he wasn't that great, he was the first black quarterback to win rookie of the year. Cam Newton, RG3, and Jameis Winston, Kyler Murray, and uh, of course there was uh, Jamarcus Russell. They were also number one overall picks. But for the most part, a lot of these guys had success. For all the flaws that some of them had, you know, you had Donald McNabb that he got his team to a Super Bowl and they kept getting to NFC Championship games with some guys that wasn't as wasn't that great <laughs> around him all the time. Jamarcus Russell, I can't speak for him, but Cam Newton, he's won an NFL MVP. He's gotten his team to a Super Bowl and even won the Heisman when he was at Auburn in the one year that he played. Jameis, Jameis Winston, he's led the league in passing yards. All right, yeah, I understand the interceptions. He threw a lot of picks. <laughs> RG3, he won rookie of the year. I don't think he should have. I think it, that, you know, Andrew Luck probably should have. But that was great. Kyler Murray, first pick in the draft. He's pretty good. He's pretty good. All right, so you have, you have plenty of guys. And even going up to now, some of the best players, quarterbacks in the league, Patrick Mahomes, uh, Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, and two, two, uh, all th- uh, two of these three have at least won the MVP award. Surprisingly, Russ, Russell Wilson has never even gotten a vote for MVP. And, you know, pray for Deshaun Watson. I hope things you know, are not what they are. I'll leave that alone. But Deshaun Watson, pretty good quarterback for Houston. Dak Prescott, even with some of the flaws, pretty good quarterback to be drafted in the fourth round. So, you know, you have that. You have those things um, that you miss out on when you when you exclude. And even more so than the black quarterback and just the black athlete, you just look at the league now. 70% of the league is black now. Now, there's some room for improvement, for improvement. It really is. We talk about players. Okay, that quarterbacks, we, I think we're fixing that. That's not a problem anymore. They're not asking everybody to play another position unless they really don't think you can play it for the most part. Head coaches, though, kind of an issue, okay? Now, I'm going to go, when I talk about head coaches, I can mention that there's only three African-American head coaches right now. Five total minorities, though. Remember, I said minorities as well. Mike Tomlin, Pittsburgh, Brian Flores, Miami, and then the newly uh, newly drafted, the newly hired by the Houston Texans, David Culley, who spent years with the um, in the, just in the league period. He, just, he came over from Baltimore, but you have that. Then you have guys like Ron Rivera of Washington, Latino, and then the first ever Muslim Muslim head coach in NFL history, Robert Salah for the New York Jets. And speaking of going back to the Latino experience, something else, some other things I did not know. Now, I knew about, you know, Anthony Munoz, 11-time Pro Bowl offensive tackle for the Bengals and a Hall of Fame, you know, player. And I knew about Tony Casillas. Excuse me, Casillas. I knew about him as a defensive tackle for the Dallas Cowboys. I did not know, going all the way back to 1929, Spanish-born running back and punter, Jess Rodriguez, who played with the Buffalo Bisons back then, and his brother, Kelly, 
play for the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets. Then there's, you don't know these guys, Waldo Don Carlos. He was the first Latin player to be a part of an NFL championship team playing both ways for the Green Bay Packers in 1931. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here's to the great American settlers. The millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say. Start a podcast with Spreaker from iHeart and unleash your creative freedom. Maybe even earn enough money to one day tell your old boss, hey, I'm no settler, I'm an explorer. Spreaker.com, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Hustle on over today. I didn't know about Ricardo Rick, uh, what's his name? Ricardo Rick Caceres who started his career with an 81-yard touchdown run. And in 56, his second year in the league with the Bears, he led the NFL in rushing. Had no idea. Didn't know Joe, uh, Joe Cap was Latino at all. Yes, I knew about Jim Plunkett with the Oakland Raiders. They won two Super Bowls with him at quarterback, and he was a first overall pick. Had to be the first overall Latino to be picked. Not only a quarterback, but... The first overall Latino player selected in the NFL draft. I'm thinking, I'm just guessing to be honest with you. And he won the MVP of Super Bowl 15. And not to mention coach-wise, Tom Flores, who was a journeyman quarterback for the AFL back in the 60s. He should be in the Hall of Fame, winning two Super Bowls and uh, doing a fine job taking over after John Madden retired. Tom Flores for the Oakland Raiders, Los Angeles Raiders. He should be in the Hall of Fame. Had no idea about a lot of these guys. And then the last one, I always kind of get mad about this one. It's old. Look, 1972, the 72 Dolphins, they won Super Bowl seven. It was a boring game to watch. I'm not going to lie to you. But Manny Fernandez was the nose tackle that pretty much, he had the no-name defense, but he shut down that running game for the Washington football team that day he had 17 freaking tackles and didn't win mvp i don't understand how you don't win mvp for that but anyway there's a lot of progression that needs to be made a lot of progression that needs to be made remaining on the docket for this league i mean you can see um a little bit of change but they love you know having african-americans on defense but not necessarily on offense all the time it's some progression but it's slow you look at the coordinators, for instance. Most of the black coordinators are on the defensive side of the ball. Leslie Frazier, Minnesota. Lovey Smith, Houston. Charlie Strong, at least, is an assistant head coach at Jacksonville. Deuce Staley, same thing for Philadelphia. I mean, um, for Detroit. He's with Detroit now. Then you got Raheem Morris, Ken Norton. They're all defensive coordinators. Pep Hamilton, he's one of the few quarterback coaches. One of the few. So offensive coaches-wise, 
You have to love what the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who won the Super Bowl this past year, most of their whole staff is black, and they have two coordinators that are black. And no, I'm not referring only to Todd Bowles on the defensive side. Byron Leftwich is one of only two offensive coordinators in the league. The other one for Kansas City, who won the Super Bowl the year before, Eric Bieniemy. We would love to see these guys get head coaching jobs. Really would. And not don't even stop at at you know Latino or or Muslim American or 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 African American. Then there's women. You want to see women start to be included more too. Now Meryl Javetafar, she's an assistant strength uh Co- uh, and conditioning coach for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And there's other teams that employ women as well. But there's a lot of diversity going on in Tampa Bay. Um, you want to see that have GMs? We have at least three. We're up to three now. The Washington football team hired Martin Mayhew, former player, to be a GM. We already have Chris Greer of Miami and Andrew Berry of Cleveland. So there's some progression, but there's still more to be had. Ownership, there are none. There are no African-American owners. Although we do have, we have a couple of minority owners. And the ones I think about the most obviously are Kim Pagula of the, uh, you know, her and her husband. And she is what, South Korean American. Uh, Kim Pagula of the Buffalo Bills. Um, and then there's also, yeah, we do have a couple of women. You have Janice McNair and family uh, since Bob McNair passed away right here in my backyard. Of course, uh, we have Amy, Amy Adams Strunk of the Tennessee Titans. And then I was also thinking about, well, I guess you can include Ziggy Wilf of the Minnesota Vikings. I think he's uh, German American or whatnot. Is he, is he German? Yeah, yeah, because he was born in Berlin, as a matter of fact. So you have him um, and with the uh, with the New Orleans Saints, Gail Benson. So you got, you know, some women that's included there. Um, but And Shad Khan for the Jacksonville Jaguars. But, I mean, th- there's so much more that needs to be, to be had, so much more that needs to be done when it comes to in- being more inclusive. So nothing against... My Caucasian brothers and sisters, um, but you know we'd like to see more diversity uh, in these sports leagues. I would love to see Becky Hammond of the San Antonio Spurs become a head coach in the NFL. I mean, in the NBA. I would love to see you know uh, a, a woman or 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 or, or enough, more managers, you know, in the in uh, the Major League Baseball. And in the NFL, I'd love to see uh, a woman head coach in the NFL. They can do the work, clearly. There was someone that could be productive and do the exact same things that they could do uh, way back in the in the, the 1902, 19s, the 1920s and 30s, and understand the times and the things that they were that were happening, just wrong, you know, exclusion and segregation uh and integration so it was a lot of things that were wrong but we can get this stuff fixed it's going to take a little patience but i believe that it can happen one day 
all right let's wrap this show up it's gonna be really fast uh y'all know what time it is it's story time with uncle mike get your pillows your blankets your cots all of that stuff and you better be fast because this is going to be over really quick i have a friend uh that i've worked with for about what about 10 11 years maybe 12 years former nfl player kenny johnson he played with the buffalo bills for about six years um and he went to I think it was knox college uh back in the 70s and his story is really amazing one of these days i'm actually going to have him on this show because he's got some really great stories and he has a great mind for football um and the guy's huge too he played defensive end the funny part is the first thing i remembered about his story when i first met him is that basically the year that he went out, I think he was either cut or traded. Uh, the guy that pretty much replaced him was Bruce Smith, Hall of Fame defensive end out of Virginia Tech. Um, but uh, he always has some great stories. And this one comes from when he played in school. And his story, uh, he, he I'd like for him to tell it, he ended up having to run the 40 barefoot. <laughs> That's, he was pretty fast back in the day to, to get the best time. And he caught the eye of NFL scouts and he ended up getting drafted. And as a matter of fact, his claim to fame is that he was drafted right after Joe Montana, Joe Montana in the 79 draft was the last pick of the third round out of Notre Dame. If you look right up under there, fourth round, first pick of the first fourth round, Kenny Johnson. Um, so we call him coach. You know, and it, it's not coach. It's coach. Uh, if anybody played football, you know what the lingo is. You know what I mean. So coach is always telling us a story. And um, this one, I mean, I believe him. <laughs> but some stuff, man, it could be really unbelievable. He had a teammate that had narcolepsy. And he played football with narcolepsy. And I'm like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, man. Sometimes the dude, uh, he'd fall asleep during practice. But then the other thing was him falling asleep after a tackle. That's bananas, man. Falling asleep during a football game. You know how dangerous that sounds? You know, you're, you're, you're getting ready to go head up with somebody. And you, you literally pass out as dude just runs through you. I, I mean, that would be dangerous to me. But that ain't even... That's not even uh, the meat of the story. The guy fell asleep in class. He said he was in the class. They had a class together and he was trying to cheat on a test. He had the answers in his sleeve and he fell asleep at some point and it was sticking out of his sleeve. And yeah, they rung him up for cheating on, on an exam. I'm like, oh, that that's just not, that's not great. <laughs> it's not great at all. But that's not even the kicker. I guess this is where, take it or not, this is the story that he told me. He said that the guy tried to rob a store, like a little corner store. He goes in with a pistol. I don't know if this is while they were still playing or afterwards. I have no idea. He goes in the store with a pistol. And it's like everybody... Put your hands up. He falls asleep, standing up with the pistols in his hand. And I'm guessing he woke up in the back of the, uh, of the squad car. 
I, I don't know. That's just not a smart thing. You you have narcolepsy. I mean, if you don't know what narcolepsy is, look, you fall asleep at the drop of a hat. It don't take anything. You don't have to be tired. You can fall asleep at the drop of a hat. Now, I mean, I don't know how people feel about narcolepsy. I don't see it as like um, a life-threatening condition, but someone trying to rob uh, a store and cheat on a test and you have narcolepsy, that's just, and play football. With narcolepsy. That don't mix to me. <laughs> oh my God, I still can't believe this. But yeah, not, if you if you if you want to know what it's like, watch the movie Deuce Bigelow. One of the girls that he was taking out, uh, the main character, Rob Schneider, was taken out, was falling asleep. They had to tie her hair to a rail during dinner. He had to wear put a football helmet on her head when they went skating, stuff like that. This dude put on a football helmet, and I guess it just didn't matter. Anyway, that's the show. It's a wrap. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, you can check out the Behind the Mic podcast. We're on Spreaker. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, your radio, my radio. Please tell your friends. Tell your family. Listen. Find me on IG, Instagram. Find me on Facebook. Find me on Twitter. I'm there and I'm watching you. You better listen to my show or I'm going to find your house. Out. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 